Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ted O'Connell, author of USMLE Step 2 Secrets and Chief Content Officer for Inside the Boards. This is the Step 2 Secrets podcast, where we provide you the high-yield content from Step 2 Secrets in audio format, as well as question breakdowns, so you can study on the go and get back to reclaiming some of your life. This is the question breakdown for the shock chapter. The surgical intern on call is summoned to the bedside of a post-operative patient for urine output of 20 milliliters over the last four hours. The patient is in his third hospital day for treatment of an esophageal rupture. Vital signs are temperature 37.6 degrees Celsius or 99.7 degrees Fahrenheit, blood pressure of 90 over 50 millimeters of mercury, heart rate of 115 beats per minute, and respirations of 16 per minute. Urine and blood samples are sent for appropriate labs. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management of this patient? Is it A, dopamine, B, furosemide, lactated ringer 500 milliliter bolus IV, D, red blood cell transfusion, or E, tobramycin and metronidazole? So this patient is tachycardic and hypotensive, which is indicative of hypovolemia, and that is also further manifested through the decreased urine output. Initial treatment of a patient like this should include a fluid bolus of lactated ringer solution. There's considerable observational and experimental evidence documenting an association between fluids containing high chloride content, like normal saline, and the development of worsening of acute kidney injury. Both lactated ringer solution and newer isotonic balanced salt solutions are therefore preferable in patients with or at significant risk of acute kidney injury, such as this patient who is hypotensive with decreased urine output. So now let's take a look at the other answer choices just to go through those. Choice A was dopamine. So dopamine, we know, increases blood flow to the kidneys and can increase urine output. It can help treat hypotension, but would not be indicated in this case because it also increases heart rate, and this patient has a tachycardia. Furthermore, fluid resuscitations is indicated before pressors in the treatment of hypotension due to sepsis. Choice B, which is furosemide, this would be appropriate if the patient were fluid overloaded, but there's no evidence of that in this particular case. Choice D is red blood cell transfusion. So post-surgical internal hemorrhage is a possibility in this patient, 
But initial volume expansion with normal saline or lactated ringers is the first step in management prior to the lab results coming back or even having clinical evidence of hemorrhage. And then finally, choice E, tobramycin and metronidazole. So sepsis due to urinary tract infection can present with tachycardia and hypotension, especially in the elderly. However, urine output would not decrease and the patient would likely be febrile. And furthermore, metronidazole is not used in the treatment of urinary tract infection. So this combination of tobramycin and metronidazole just doesn't really make sense. And with that, we'll get back to our show. This is the shock chapter from USMLE Step 2 Secrets, 5th edition. Question 1. Define shock. Shock is a state in which blood flow to and perfusion of peripheral tissues are inadequate to sustain life. Initial effects of shock are reversible, though it can result in organ failure and death. Although they are not included in a rigid definition of shock, for board purposes, hypotension and oliguria or anuria are associated findings. Tachycardia is also usually present. Question 2. List the four primary clinical types of shock. 1. Distributive, that is, septic, neurogenic, and anaphylactic. 2. Hypovolemic. 3. Cardiogenic. 4. Obstructive, from pulmonary embolism, cardiac tamponade, or tension pneumothorax. Question 3. What should you do if a patient is in shock? Keep the patient alive with the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, while you try to differentiate the causes of shock. Quickly give oxygen and fluids unless the patient is in congestive heart failure. If congestive heart failure is present, avoid fluids. Treat the underlying condition. For example, a patient with tension pneumothorax causing obstructive shock requires needle decompression. Question 4. How should fluids be given if a patient is in shock? Most patients in shock require resuscitation with fluids. Infuse 1 to 2 liters as fast as it will go. The standard intravenous bolus is 10 to 20 milliliters per kilogram of normal saline or lactated ringer solution. Then reassess the patient to determine whether the bolus has helped. Positive signs include increases in blood pressure and urine output. Do not be afraid to give a second or third bolus if the initial boluses do not lead to improvement. Of course, you should watch for fluid overload, think pulmonary crackles or jugular venous distension, which may cause or exacerbate congestive heart failure. Place a Foley catheter to ensure accurate monitoring of urine output. Question 5. What should you do if fluid challenges fail to raise the blood pressure? Use invasive hemodynamic monitoring to help determine the cause of the shock and to guide therapeutic decisions. The patient may require presser to elevate the blood pressure. Question 6. What are the classic parameters for each type of shock? In distributive shock, the cardiac output is high or low, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is low, late, systemic vascular resistance is low, and the systemic venous oxygen concentration is high. In hypovolemic shock, cardiac output is low, late. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is low, also late. Systemic vascular resistance is high. And systemic venous oxygen concentration is low, late. 
In cardiogenic shock, cardiac output is low, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is high, systemic vascular resistance is high, and systemic venous oxygen saturation is low. In obstructive shock, cardiac output is low, which is late, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is low, also late, systemic vascular resistance is high, and systemic venous oxygen saturation is also high. With anaphylactic shock, the cause is usually obvious because of a temporal relation to a common culprit. Question 7. Specify the usual findings in patients with neurogenic shock. Patients usually have a history of severe central nervous system trauma or hemorrhage and flushed skin. The heart rate may be normal. Question 8. How do you recognize septic shock? Look for fever, tachycardia, tachypnea, leukocytosis, unless the patient is immunosuppressed, skin that is flushed and warm to the touch, and extremes of age. Start broad-spectrum antibiotics after pan-culturing, that is, blood, sputum, and urine cultures, plus others as dictated by the history. Question 9. What clues suggest cardiogenic shock? Look for a history of myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, or chest pain. Assess patients for risk factors for coronary artery disease. Most patients have cold, clammy skin and look pale. Distended neck veins and pulmonary congestion are usually present. Question 10. How do you recognize hypovolemic shock? Look for a history of fluid loss, such as hemorrhage, diarrhea, vomiting, sweating, use of diuretics, or inability to drink water. Patients usually have orthostatic hypotension, tachycardia, sunken eyes, tenting of the skin, and a sunken fontanelle in infants. Patients have cold, clammy skin and look pale. Fluid loss may be internal, as with a ruptured abdominal or thoracic aortic aneurysm, or with abdominal trauma. The postoperative state may also lead to hypovolemic shock. Question 11. What clues suggest anaphylactic shock? Look for a history of recent exposure to the common culprits, bee stings, peanuts, shellfish, penicillins, sulfa drugs, or any new medication. Treat with epinephrine, intramuscular is preferred, and fluids. Administer oxygen and intubate if necessary. A tracheostomy or cricothyroidotomy should be performed if laryngeal edema prevents intubation. Bronchodilators, corticosteroids, and antihistamines are all second-line agents in anaphylaxis. Monitor all patients for at least six hours after the initial reaction. Question 12. What clues suggest pulmonary embolus as a cause of shock? Look for deep venous thrombosis. Look for positive Hohmann sign with painful swollen leg or risk factors for DVT. Remember the Virchow triad, endothelial damage, stasis, and hypercoagulable state. Watch for common risk factors including postoperative state, especially after orthopedic or pelvic surgery, recent delivery for amniotic fluid embolus, bone fractures for fat emboli, or malignancy. Patients classically have acute onset of chest pain, tachypnea, shortness of breath, right axis shift on EKG, 
as a sign of right heart strain and positive computed tomography pulmonary angiography or ventilation perfusion scan. Heparin or a low molecular weight heparin should be administered to prevent further clotting and emboli. Question 13. How do you recognize pericardial tamponade as a cause of shock? Look for a history of a stab wound in the left chest and distended neck veins. Bedside cardiac ultrasound is a quick way to assess for tamponade. Perform pericardiocentesis emergently in the setting of shock. Question 14. Explain toxic shock syndrome. Toxic shock syndrome usually presents in a woman of reproductive age who leaves her tampon in place too long. Look for skin desquamation. It is caused by staph aureus toxin. Question 15. What clues suggest Addison disease as a cause of shock? Patients usually have a history of steroid use or autoimmune disease, hyperkalemia, and hyponatremia. They typically present with neurologic symptoms including confusion, delirium, or coma. Treat with steroids and large volumes of normal saline. Question 16. What is the most important point to remember if a patient is in shock? The ABCs. Patients in shock often need heroic measures to survive and are among the exceptions to the wait and see and be conservative rules that are usually favored by USMLE examiners. Intubate at the drop of a hat, do not feed the patient, and avoid narcotics if possible. Treat the underlying disorder. Mental status changes are often an important clue to impending doom. Also monitor the EKG, vital signs, Swan-Gans parameters, though this is not being used as much anymore, urine output, arterial blood gas, and hemoglobin and hematocrit. Question 17. Discuss the use of dobutamine, dopamine, norepinephrine, and isoproterenol to support blood pressure in the setting of shock. Dobutamine is a beta-1 agonist used to increase cardiac output by increasing contractility. It has mild beta-2 activity that results in peripheral vasodilation. Dopamine affects dopamine receptors at low doses and results in selective vasodilation. The traditional use for renal perfusion is questionable. At higher doses, its beta-1 agonist effects increase contractility. At the highest doses, dopamine has alpha-1 agonist effects and causes vasoconstriction. Note that this differential effect is debated but could still be tested. Norepinephrine is used for its alpha-1 agonist effects, but it also has beta-1 effects. It is primarily given to patients with hypotension to increase peripheral resistance so that perfusion to vital organs can be maintained. Isoproterenol is primarily an inotropic and chronotropic agent rather than a presser. It is used for hypotension that is due to bradycardia and is used for its beta-1 and beta-2 effects. Question 18. What about the use of phenylephrine, epinephrine, and phosphodiesterase inhibitors in the setting of shock? Phenylephrine is used for its alpha-1 agonist effects resulting in vasoconstriction. It is similar to norepinephrine but has no beta effects. Epinephrine is used in patients with cardiac arrest and anaphylaxis for its alpha and beta effects. Milrinone and enamrinone are phosphodiesterase inhibitors.
They are used in patients with refractory heart failure. They are not first-line agents. Because they have a positive inotropic effect via potentiation of cyclic AMP, but they cannot be used in hypotensive patients. That's the end of this chapter. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, my publishing company behind USMLE Step 2 Secrets, for allowing us to put out this book in audio format. Please check out the other Inside the Boards podcasts over at InsideTheBoards.com including the main Inside the Boards podcast and the Inside the Boards Study Smarter series for question breakdowns and tips on getting through medical school. And with that, we wrap up today's episode of USMLE Step 2 Secrets. Hi, this is Ted O'Connell. I just wanted to let you know real quick that when the time comes for you to begin studying for the USMLE Step 3 We actually now have a USMLE Step 3 subscription podcast, so I encourage you to check that out over at medpreptogo.com. We have sample episodes available, and even if you're studying for Step 2, you may actually find some of this content uh, really useful for your studies, so please do check it out.